Hello, I'm Charles Bowman and welcome to this, our latest episode of Off The Agenda. And today we are again at the Brigade and Beyond Food Foundation, an institution that has trained many hundreds of apprentices into jobs and given thousands of homeless people new skills. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dame Elizabeth Anyong, a British nurse, healthcare administrator, lecturer, author and emeritus professor of nursing at University of West London. She became the UK's first sickle cell and thalassemia nurse specialist, helping to establish the Brent Sickle Cell and Thalassemia Counselling Centre, and in 1998 created the Mary Seacole Centre for Nursing Practice at the University of West London. She holds a PhD, was appointed a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, and is a Fellow of the Royal College of Nursing. She retired in 2007 and in 2016 self-published her memoirs, Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union. And at this time, when the importance of nursing has never been more under the spotlight, it is my great, great pleasure to welcome Dame Elizabeth to Off the Agenda. Dame Elizabeth, welcome to Off the Agenda, and it's a real great pleasure to, to meet with you today. And I'm going to start, if I may, at the beginning. Uh, you were born in Birmingham, and that was to an Irish mother and a Nigerian father, and that was in 1947, two years after the end of the Second World War, and a few years after the Birmingham Blitz, which left many of the local communities absolutely devastated. And your own upbringing as a child had its challenges. You schooled away from home uh, at a Catholic uh, children's home run by nuns. And I'm keen to understand how did those experiences at that period of your life affect you? Well, first of all, um, it's, it's, it's wonderful to meet you, Sir Charles. Thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to our chat. Yes, I'm now 74 years of age. So we're going right way back to a couple of years after the Second World War, as you've said. And actually, my memory of those nine years in a children's home are generally extremely happy. I was the only black child there uh, during that period. What the memorable periods were the fact that I did seem to be chosen amongst a few children to do, for example, Irish dancing, which I absolutely adored. And so much so that we would go on little tours around Stoke-on-Trent areas. And I actually won medals for my dancing. Uh, I love music. So uh, Irish music, folk music uh, has stayed with me since then. But also, again, I was chosen uh, with just a few other children to learn to play the piano. And that's been one of the biggest sorrows for me, having left the convent. I never got the opportunity to continue with that. But it has left me with a huge love of piano music uh, and other sort of music. I think I was a child that was slightly spoiled in the convent. So it's not... My, my narrative there is not, is not really identical to some of the horror stories we've heard uh, about children in care and sadly, at the hands of religious authorities as well. There were some dreadful experiences, but they were in the minority. They have stayed with me. I'll give you one example, which is that I was a bedwetter. And I don't know where these nuns 
were taught this horrific punishment that they meted out to those of us. They, they would inspect the dormitory, the beds in the dormitory, and I would wake up and my heart would sink because I thought, oh no. Uh, sheet would be torn off the bed. You could see that the nun was annoyed. We would have to uh, go and stand each of us on a chair and have our urine-soaked sheet draped over our body. No, that, wasn't, that wasn't it. Uh, the punishment was also that we had to stretch our arms outright. I mean, literally, we had to be standing like that. And the punishment, if our arms dropped, which of course they're going to do, was a nun on the other side of the sheet <clears throat> whacking us with something like a ruler. That is seared in my memory in terms of <clears throat> it, it should not have happened. Even as a small child, it, I knew that this was, un, you know, Unfair. But also, it didn't, it didn't cure the bedwetting. I'm actually an extremely logical person, and I think I was a logical child. And I knew in my... But it isn't working. Why are they doing this? Apart from... That, that, was, that was a really um, uh, difficult memory for me to carry on in my life. But uh, another aspect that gradually dawned on me was that I wasn't the same colour as other children. And I washed my face ten times as a child to, to, to become white. didn't work. Instead, I ended up in the sick bay. Uh, so I have eczema. So those are some of the negative memories that I, that I hold. But overall, I think what helped me was the ability to play with other children, make friends with other yeah. children, that, as I said, the... Those adult nuns, on the whole, were friendly, pleasant, and it made up for those more difficult uh, memories. Plus, I never, ever had a sense of rejection from my mother. She was a frequent, regular visitor to the children's home. So I think, I think looking back, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I do love watching um, Who Do You Think You Are? Uh, long-lost family, and I see the threads that run through that for those individuals who have experienced rejection and have been traumatised by that. That has never been my experience. Well, you left school at 16 and continued your studies to become a nurse, and I am very keen to understand the inspiration behind your decision to train and qualify uh, as a nurse. And I think I understand, I'm, I may, may be wrong, but notwithstanding some of those challenges that you experienced at school, that part of that inspiration was in fact one of the nuns uh, uh, at the school who cared for your own e e eczema and demonstrated to you how the treatment of health issues in a compassionate um, and expert manner can, can really make such a difference. Uh, is that right? It's totally spot on, Sir Charles, because... As a child, I was a regular visitor to the sick bay because of extremely severe eczema in my armpits and behind my knee. And the first thing that I would do would be to peep around the door to, to look and see whether it was the white nun that was on duty or the black nun. Now, actually, all the nuns were white, but the white nun wore a white habit unlike the traditional black habits that every other nun wore. Why I love that nun was that I knew 
that I was not going to experience any sort of pain when she changed the dressing. In those days, they'd use something called coal tar paste, lovely, soothing, cool paste on your itchy, painful eczema. But, oh, and then they would put bandage over it. The dreaded part for me was when the bandage was taken off, because by this time now, the coal tar paste had dried not only onto the skin, but onto that bandage. If it was not the white nun, those nuns would just seem to tear the bandage off, and it, it was just excruciatingly painful. And I would bawl my head, and I, it was horrible. And so there's this anxiety that build, builds up as I'm peering around the door. Is the white nun there? And she was generally there. Oh, I can't tell you how pleased I was. So anyway, because what she would do would be to use distraction therapy, we'd call that now. She would use words like bottom. Now, you have to remember, I'm now in an extremely religious environment, Catholic environment. Nuns, we were taught, were the brides of Christ, very holy women. I did not expect a nun to use a word like bottom. And I would fall for it every time, burst out laughing. Before I knew it, the bandage was off. No pain whatsoever. Do you know that nun, I, I can still picture her. I, I just adored her because to me, she meant I wasn't going to experience any pain. And I think it was just before I left the children's home that I discovered that she was also a nurse. Now, I never wanted to be a nun, but I certainly thought nursing was for me. And I never veered from that uh, decision. And do you know something? It was the best decision I ever made in my life. Fantastic. A real role model. Absolutely. And your father, if I might go on to that. Your father, a Nigerian diplomat, and he was the first Nigerian permanent secretary of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I, I believe Nigeria's first ambassador to Italy. And you often cite him uh, as the first person to provide you with career advice. Can you perhaps tell us uh, what that was and how it helped shape your career? Yes, certainly. Uh, to explain the context, though, was that I didn't find my father until I was nearly 25. I had my mother's Irish surname, and nobody ever spoke about my father. And as a child and as a teenager, you just know, if something's not spoken about, you don't bring it up. However, when I was 24, I wrote to my mother and said, look, can you tell me something about my dad? And immediately she wrote back, gave me his name, Lawrence Odiatu Victor Anion, told me they'd met at Cambridge University, but that their, uh, they didn't, their relationship didn't uh, last. She didn't think I would find him, because they'd lost contact by now. And I didn't know any Nigerians. However, I did know a Sierra Leonean barrister who had told me once that he taught Nigerian law students. So I said to him, John, do you think you could find out? This is now a couple of years after the Nigerian Civil War, the Biafran War. I said, John, do you think you could find out where this name comes from in Nigeria. That's all I wanted to know. Was my father Ibo Hauser, Fulani, you know, Yoruba? That was on a Monday evening. Wednesday morning, John rang me. I've spoken to your father. I said, what? What, in Nigeria? He said, no, Palmer's Green, London. That is a story in itself, honestly. <laughs> Thursday, I met my father for the first time. It was the most wonderful experience, as you can imagine. And I knew him for eight years before, sadly, he died. He was only 59 when he died. However, those eight years were 
brilliant. Uh, I really got to know my father. And I visited him in Nigeria when he moved back to Nigeria in 1973. He was now back in Nigeria. And I fell in love with Nigeria. I just, the warmth, the food, the music, the people. I, and in a sense, it was slightly rose-tinted glasses in the sense that I realised, you know, I, I literally had fallen in love with it. It's a bit like President Obama's experiences of when he went to Kenya for the first time, he fell in love with it. It's just the embracing of the family and the feeling of acceptance. So much so that I said to my father that uh, I wanted to work I wanted to move to Nigeria and work there. And he was really pleased. However, he gave me a word of warning, sat me down. He said, look, you'd be eaten alive if you came at your present state. You don't know the language. You don't know many people. Yes, you've got your family here. If you came in a much more senior position than you are now as a health visitor then, you would thoroughly enjoy Nigeria. How can you progress in your career. And I, nobody, Sir Charles, had ever, ever asked me that question. And I was actually really happy as a health visitor. I had no ambitions to go any further at that point. And my father made me actually think, well, how can you progress? And I realized it could either be uh, teaching, clinical, or research. And he said, well, which of those three areas would you feel that you could progress. And straight away, teaching. I knew I was a good teacher. I enjoyed teaching. And he said, well, how do you become, how do you become a teacher then in nursing? And I said, well, you go on a tutor's course. But I said, you know, Dad, I don't think I'm experienced enough. And he said, ah, but have you actually explored it? Have you actually applied? No. Well, I think you should do that. And it was just so straightforward, in your face, get on with it basically in the nicest possible way. I did that, I got onto a course. Not only did that, I got a scholarship to cover all my fees. Rang my father, told him, he said, there you go, I told you so. He didn't say that, but he was so thrilled, as was my mother, of course, as well. And that was a huge lesson for me, which has helped me uh, encourage other people. Because seriously, I, I realized I hadn't been I hadn't had career counselling. It was straightforward as that. Yes. The crucial can I see the importance of career counselling and mentorship. Um, gosh, perhaps we'll come on to that later. And from that, you travelled out to, to the US, uh, the USA, and that was to study counselling for sickle cell and thalassemia. And that was because courses at that time were not, were not I underline, available uh, in the UK. When you returned... To, to the UK alongside Dr. Mika uh, Brozovic, you created the very first UK um, sickle cell and thalassemia counselling centre in the UK, which in the event became the template for 30 others um, across the whole country. That was an incredible change, a huge influence. Uh, and I'm keen to understand, did you realise at that time you were becoming a pioneer in the space of nursing at that moment in time, and perhaps to recognise now some of the challenges and the journey that you faced at that moment in time, and were there any things that, you know, with a sense of hindsight, you would perhaps have done differently? Well, we're going back now to the 1970s, uh, particularly the mid to late 1970s, where 
I, I, I call this the three P's in terms of my getting involved with sickle cell anemia, and that is personal, professional, and political. And, and, and briefly, that is, after I'd met my father, I discovered I had a cousin with sickle cell anemia. Uh, professionally, I came across families with the condition as a health visitor and realised I didn't know anything about it. And politically, I'd met my father, I was becoming... Well, I was now aware of my full identity, and particularly as a black woman in the health service. And quickly I realised that sickle cell anemia was not given the priority it merited. And actually, it also highlighted, it gave me an incredible example of health inequalities. Why do I say that? Because when I, when I explored sickle cell anemia through uh, the experience I had in the United States, but also back in, 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 in London in particular, I learned that there were more cases of sickle cell anemia in the UK than there were of cystic fibrosis. Now, cystic fibrosis is, is an incredibly serious long-term illness and requires all the resources it's getting, probably more. But I hadn't realised there were actually more cases of sickle cell anemia. And I'm thinking, well, hold on. If you compare um, the specialist centres for cystic fibrosis, there were none for sickle cell. There were no specialist sickle cell nurses as there were in the United States. And that's actually what gave me the idea. Hold on. Because up till then I thought it was really haematologists like Dr. Brozovic, yep. pediatricians. They're the, they're the specialists for sickle cell. Nurses didn't really have a role. Hold on. I discovered they, they do have a role in America. So I came back from one of my trips and spoke to Dr. Brozovic and said, look, do you think I could play a role uh, as they as I've observed in the United States. She thought that was fantastic. And, you know, she, gave, she was a mentor to me. She gave me so much encouragement. Found the funding, in fact, and that's how we set up the service in 1979. Extraordinary. And then 30 centres developed therefrom. And yours was the template. Brent was the template that get, got rolled off. Uh, rolled out across the country. You see, the media took an interest in this, and that, yeah. again, was another lesson, because I just thought this... I'm a very logical person, and to me, there was a gap. I had this uh, uh, person in, in the show, uh, Dr. Brozovic, who was specialising in sickle cell disease, uh, merely because she, when she moved to Brent, discovered that there were many cases. She... That wasn't her expertise area. She made it her expertise. Yeah. And we just worked as a team. And that, I love working in, in teams, I have to say. And what I realized was, if you listen to the patients, listen to them. I mean, literally, zip your lips and listen. Don't interrupt them. Don't be uncomfortable with the pauses. Don't be uncomfortable when they're challenging you, when they're challenging the system that you work in because of the deficits within that system, do not take it personally. Because it's very easy to, to actually... Do, oh, but actually, I learned that from the United States. Do not take it personally. Rather, learn from that. Work as equals with those who actually have the condition in terms of trying to prioritise which of the gaps do you try and address first and in what yeah. way do you do that and also that you cannot you cannot 
do it on your own. These were very valuable lessons for me and lessons that I realized other people wish to learn and that helped the expansion of the services that we developed in Brent in 1979. Fantastic. Can I, I mean, you mentioned health equality or inequality. Obviously, the NHS is a, is a leading, leading example uh, to the rest of the world. But as with any government-based um, uh, service institution, there will always be budget issues and priorities based on numbers as, as much as need. Uh, how do you think we can best ensure uh, that conditions such as sickle cell, which affect smaller proportions of the population, don't get over, overlooked in the context of today's uh, profession? That's an, uh, an incredibly important point. But actually, it's interesting that some of those conditions, such as sickle cell disease, such as mental health, and sadly now with COVID-19 pandemic, we actually have the data that shows that they are not minority conditions. And I think that's where I've, I've found working with health professionals who ask me, but how do you make the case? I said, well, first of all, you've got to get the facts. You cannot run on emotion. You, you have to have the facts. And you have to be able to put it in a public health perspective because resources are limited. Why should somebody uh, allocate resources to this issue that you are so passionate about? Don't be in a little box. Don't get over emotion. Use your emotions. Yeah. See, what I say, I, I realise now that it was only when I read President Obama's uh, first memoirs, Dreams from My Father, that he talked about belly full of anger and how he fortunately used that anger in a very positive way. I realise now on reflection, I've used my anger. So when I'm with other angry advocates, say, well, harness that anger into positive energy and use that energy not to, uh, in a negative way, that will destroy you and destroy your relationships and destroy your career possibly. <laughs> Be very, very careful. Use that anger, uh, use the energy of that anger to drive you to find out more about this issue that you're, you're, you're so passionate about. And, and look, look at other issues that have been resourced. And do, does your issue merit the same uh, resources? And if it doesn't, what are the reasons as to why this is still an important issue? You have to present factual data alongside the evidence from those affected by the conditions as well. I shall remember that. Um, in nursing terms, the experience of patients is, is absolutely key. And you explained how powerful the impact of compassion uh, can be during emotional and stressful uh, times. Uh, how have you seen that experience change over the years? You've been in the profession for, for a number of years. And how has nursing changed? And how perhaps would you like to see it evolve in the years to come? Nursing has changed dramatically since I became a qualified nurse in 1968. And the main uh, difference for me is the degree of specialization uh, which has its positives, it has its negatives as well. The, the, the degree to which men have come into nursing and been much more accepted, there's still stigma and negative stereotyping of male nurses, which has to be continuously addressed. I think, not I think, I know that COVID-19 has brought out into the open the value of nurses 
the value of nurses, because sadly, so many people in this country, uh, globally, we look at this country, so many people have been touched by the COVID-19 pandemic. Even if they haven't had the illness, we're getting to the point that a lot of people know people who have had the illness, and some of whom have sadly died, some of whom now have long COVID, some of whom, although recovered, it's been a very traumatic experience for that individual, never mind um, the families. And the, the, the use of technology to bring relatives and friends closer to that person who is ill but can't receive visitors, who is dying. I mean, it's, the trauma of this pandemic has been horrific. And the role that nurses have played has been incredible. A, all health workers, they're on the front line, subjected to this higher viral load, and therefore the risks, as we saw from the outset of the COVID pandemic, of health professionals succumbing to this wretched um, virus. And so it, it really has brought home to people the value of nursing in a, in a way that we, we wouldn't have wished. But it, it, that's, that's what's happened. No, it's something I, I absolutely recognise that point. Probably the, the majority of the nation would have taken it slightly for granted in, in years gone by. Um, and actually it requires, sadly, such a thing as this pandemic to shine a spotlight, as you put it, on the value on the value. You yourself, you've been included uh, into the Nursing Times Hall of Fame, uh, awarded uh, the fellowship of the Royal College of Nursing at Damehood uh, in the 2017 New Year's Honours. You were appointed a life patron of the Mary Seacole Trust and you were also honoured with a Pride of Britain Lifetime Achievement uh, Award, an extraordinary storyboard. Uh, of achievements there. But what has inspired you to continue your mission and raise the bar uh, in your widely recognised career? I, I think it's my family and my friends and my colleagues. I'm a very nosy person. I, I love watching documentaries on all sorts of issues. Uh, I still have that anger in my belly. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I thought it would fade as I got older. <clears throat> Um, but I, I'm also very grateful for the life that I've had and all those role models and mentors uh, that have helped me. I have this word rescue running through my mind when I've explored my life. Um, various people have rescued me, not necessarily phys sometimes physically, uh, but also emotionally and have seen something in me that I've not necessarily seen myself. And I, I'm just so, and because I read a lot and I love biographies and autobiographies, because I'm curious as to how come some people who do seem to have a lot of privilege sort of fall by the wayside sometimes, not always, just sometimes, whereas others have used that privilege in a, in a very positive way. And, and how come people who have had no privileges make it? Um, I'm, I'm just I've no, I haven't got the answers to it, but I'm constantly curious about that. But also, it makes me not get too complacent, because that's the danger of, of awards, I have to be honest. You really have to sort of just keep reminding yourself, 
there, but for the grace of God, <laughs> go myself. So uh, I think it's this continued curiosity in life and being aware how acts, maybe of kindness, maybe of healthcare, can dramatically change another person's life and yeah. make their life much more comfortable, a better quality, and, and just to never underestimate that. And even beyond the extraordinary career that we've just been uh, discussing, you've published many works over the years, I, indeed 32 publications, uh, dating right the way back to 1977, including within that writing a short history of Mary Seacole, the famous British Jamaican uh, nurse, first practitioner nurse indeed, who in 2004, many won't know that, uh, was voted the greatest black Britain. And I was keen to, uh, to ask, because not only that, you also named the Centre for Nursing Practice at the University of uh, West London after Mary Seacole. She obviously had a, a significant influence uh, on your own career. She certainly did. And in fact, the two areas of my career, sickle cell and Mary Seacole, sometimes I give my uh, talks the title from sickle to sickle, because it's interesting, why did those two areas fascinate me so much and give me so much, so much drive, I think, to develop areas. Neither of those were taught in my nursing curriculum. Neither of them. And that really, again, <laughs> caused me to be angry, but it also made me question, why? Why wasn't I taught about sickle cell in the late 60s in West London, where it was obviously an issue, but we weren't taught about it. And why wasn't I taught about Mary Seacole? At a hospital, where she was actually, Mary Seacole, I didn't know of course, was buried a quarter of a mile away from the hospital I trained. And what it made me realise, those nurse tutors, I don't think it was deliberate, I think they weren't taught about it, it didn't touch them. And so what diversity brings to society is, I, as Irish Nigerian heritage, born in London, not born in London, born in Birmingham, but I've made my life in London now, there are issues that touch me that probably haven't touched those nurse tutors that taught me. And so I do believe we all have a duty where we become aware of this to try and redress these deficits. And certainly that's been the case in terms of, for example, Mary Seacole, who I didn't learn about until 1984 because two uh, women wrote about Mary Seacole. And I, I'm thinking, great, but hold on, why didn't I know about Mary Seacole? And, and it just pushes you, it gives you that energy. You know, sometimes you get exhausted with the deficits in society and you can't take up every single issue. So that's another lesson I teach people. Choose, choose the areas you're going to. You can't take on everything. But Mary Seacole fascinated me because she was... As you said, she was this Victorian Crimean War heroine in her own right, alongside Florence Nightingale. And they both admired each other, in a yeah. sense, a few uh, differences. But I, I, it struck me, how come somebody like Mary Seacole, who was written about incredibly in the Victorian media, how come she got lost to history? Don't, don't dwell on that. Dwell on how I and others can actually raise her profile. And, and that's really what's driven me, because 
she, she, she is Jamaican Scottish. She was uh, a woman of the empire. She was fascinated by Britain. She was she was British. In this, uh, her father was a Scottish um, soldier of some sort. We don't know too much about him, but she was caring, and she was funny, and she was feisty, and she was multi-talented in the sense of her cooking, her, 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 her nursing care. She was a doctress, a bit like a GP in these days. And, you know, there are people saying, oh, but she wasn't a nurse. Hold on. And if a nurse says that to me, Sir Charles, then I will get angry because I'm saying, you don't know your nursing history because you don't know that Florence Nightingale created the first school of nursing in 1860 at St. Thomas's Hospital. The Crimean War was before that. Mary Seacole, we think, was born in 1805. How could she have qualified as a nurse? Come on, know your history of nursing. Because first of all, before, before you start the debate. That's a lovely story. Uh, and, in, in, and as it relates to your own self, um, in 2016, you published your, your own memoirs, Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union. Uh, and I think I'm right in understanding that on the 16th of September this uh, year, you are launching your reworked memoirs, um, Dreams from My Mother, uh, both in book and indeed audio book form. Uh, and I, for one, will much look forward to, to listening uh, or reading that. But perhaps tell us what we can expect from this new, new book, um, how it differs from your first memoirs, and what you would like the reader to take away uh, for, from the book itself. Thank you very much. Well, I, I, I do feel I'm privileged of having both the experience of self-publishing yeah. and then a publisher coming along five years later saying, oh, we, 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 we actually like that. Would you be happy if we took it on and expanded it? And so the first difference is it's five years on, uh, in between which I was made a dame, so yeah, hey-ho. <laughs> but also what the... Uh, publishers did was link me up with somebody and we did it through Zoom of course because of lockdown and I had the experience of Zoom meetings two or three times a week for about three months where that person enabled me to talk a little bit more openly about my emotions, my emotional journey through my life. Because I don't find that very easy, Sir Charles, I have to be honest. I tend to be a factual person and this happened and this happened. But what that individual did was draw out, you know, the sadness, the humour, the anger. What was it that has driven me to do this, to do that? And, and I, I don't mind talking about it. I find it very easy. If somebody asks me a question, it's not that I want to hide anything, but... I, normally, I don't sort of talk about the emotional side too much. It's just it's not the way I was brought up, probably. But I'm happy to discuss it because I do see... People have asked me lots of questions since my self-published memoirs. So I know that that is an area that interests me. And the, 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 the issue that has struck me from the experience of my self-published memoirs is how so much of my life has resonated with other people. So it's, it's unbelievable, the mixed race issue, the illegitimacy, uh, the nursing side. Oh, there's so many areas that people have said, I'm so pleased you wrote about that. I'm so pleased you've talked about that when you've talked about your memoirs. And so the opportunity now with a publishing company to, I, I just think, this new version 
it is a better version than the first one, you know. <laughs> well, I, for one, will much, much look forward to reading it. It is 16th of September. That's, that's the right, yes. That's the launch date. Yes. Um, well, as I say, we'll much, much look forward to, uh, to reading it at that moment in time. Uh, now, I did mention before we started that uh, a sense of common interest. I, I, I have a daughter who's just finished her first year studying to become a nurse at university. And I was keen to ask you what advice you would give to her and indeed the next generation of nurses who want to make their career in this particular field, given perhaps the extraordinary and challenging times, as you put it, that the NHS and the nursing profession has had throughout this COVID period. Well, I'm delighted to hear that she's completed her first year of, of nursing Thank you. studies. That is, that is even more important because what I would say to people who realise they've chosen the right career and because we have to accept sometimes when we go into a career, it may not be the career that mm -hmm. we thought it was going to be. So for those who know that this is the career for them, first thing I would say would hold on to the reason that you went into nursing originally and for most people is that they have compassion, they want to improve the quality of life for an individual who has an illness or whatever type of illness. They do want to make them feel better. And however simplistic some people say that is, I don't care because I know how I felt when I've been ill. And I know and I remember how it then feels when I feel better. And also for those where, where it isn't possible for them to get better, to make them comfortable. And to, you can never be at ease totally with an illness, but to feel that everything that has been, that can be done is being done just to enable you to cope better with whatever illness you have. So to, 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 to remember what has brought you into nursing, because that will help you when you dip and you will dip emotionally and physically. First, I remember it being physical because it's, it's tough, hard work. it's hard work. Um, and also the range of patients that you will meet, some you will love, some you won't like so much. Don't feel embarrassed about that. Internalize it a little bit, obviously, because I, I remember there was a particular patient who I didn't like and I did did show it by avoiding the patient, and the ward sister was wonderful. She called me into her office because the patient had been very difficult with me, and she worked out with me how I deal with that. And some people call it the difficult patient. But I had help with it, and it really did enable me to have strategies to cope when that happens again. Uh, to, to, uh, to just remember the joy you get from your communications with patients and, of course, their families and carers. Hold on to that and uh, just, just go for it. Just, just, just stay with it. And also to know the opportunities for you once you have qualified are unbelievable now. Absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I would never have envisaged as that newly qualified 21-year-old nurse way back in 1968 that I would ever, for example, be able to specialise in a condition like sickle cell, be able to combine clinical nursing and academic work as a professor of nursing. I was still able to practice my nursing speciality, not very often, but 
as part of it, because I felt that that was so important. If you're teaching students, you really need to know what's going on. And you can't do that unless you practice a little bit. Well, that's very sound, sound advice. And I'm sure, as you said earlier, that sort of sense of self-confidence in the profession, um, not least as a consequence of the value that people now are increasingly recognising of, of nursing through COVID, will also be uh, important uh, for young people as they develop. Um, and if I may, a little bit more broadly, as we venture, we hope, uh, out from these very challenging times, what, what advice would you give the, 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 the younger generation uh, more widely, those starting their career paths in the world that we see today? I'm thinking of my 13-year-old granddaughter as, 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 as I answer this question. And because we worry, don't we? They're going through totally different experience that we, we went. But she, she actually teaches me some lessons as well. Uh, and that I forget that they have uh, opportunities that we didn't have. Um, she can create her own films through her phone, for goodness sake. I mean, come on, you know. Uh, I want them to have confidence. I want them to be happy. But I also want them to know how to deal with sadness, possibly bereavement, um, how to deal with uh, their, their parents. I'm thinking of teenagers now. Uh, uh, and in a sense, it's also advice for the parents because it's, a, it's such a two-way issue, um, remembering my own experience uh, during that phase. Um, I think the most important thing, though, I would, I would hope that they know what they're good at. Whatever teachers might be saying, or friends, you know, friends can be pretty tough at times, sadly. Hold on to what they know that they are good at, what they're really interested in, and know who around them, in their family, in their school, in their, their peer group, wherever, who will support them when they feel down, that they have to, they have to talk to somebody when they're feeling rotten, that they don't hold on to those negative feelings inside of them. Have the confidence, first of all, know who is it that they could talk to and talk to that person when they don't feel good in themselves. Don't bottle it up. Well, that I think is a lovely point in which to end a wonderful conversation that we've had. Thank you so much. That sense of confidence, happiness, but understanding how to deal with sad sadness and making sure that people have the confidence to be able to discuss openly that sense of sadness if it is, is, is around. Dame Elizabeth, thank you so, so much. It's been an absolute delight to speak with you today. Thank you for your inspiration. We wish you all the very best with the launch of your new memoirs on the 16th of, of September. And as I said, I, for one, will absolutely be looking forward to reading your book from there. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Sir Charles. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyable. Because I was wondering how deep are these questions going to be. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Well, it's been a real honour and privilege to speak to Dame Elizabeth today and to hear her inspirational story and stories. And I, for one, will certainly be reading or listening to her new book, Dreams From My Mother. Thank you, Dame Elizabeth, and thank you all for listening today. That's all for me, other than to say, as always, stay tuned for more conversations, great discussions, and inspirational guests.
Thank you again and bye for now.